Coffee with Saints. Uh, this is a program uh, our redemptorist young adult ministry runs in Winnipeg, and so we wanted to try it here as well um, with our own saint expert, Bill Dykstra. <laughs> and I'll turn it over to Bill. Okay, hi guys. Hi. I guess. Glory be to Jesus Christ. Glory be forever. That's the first time I've ever done that. That's fun. Um, <laughs> so I guess, yeah, how this came about is because uh, Liz Artimco has been doing this in Winnipeg. And she wanted to do it here, even though she's not here right now. And for me, um, I've been doing a podcast called The Agios Dose for the past or almost a year, I'd say. And it kind of came about because I started praying the hours and I was looking at, you know, the saint of the day every day and thinking, I don't know who this is or who I am, you know, currently praying to, you know, like I have no idea the history and all this kind of stuff. And so I started to look into it and me and Sarah were bouncing ideas off of each other one day and we both had two conflicting ideas that we wanted to make into one idea. And so I, um, yeah, I've been doing this podcast and it's been uh, learning a lot. And it's kind of funny because I go back and I go through all the different episodes because we've done, I think it's, it's over 70 now. 74, something like that. This might be 70. Okay, and I'll look back and I'll look at like the a title of an episode. I'm like, I have no idea who that is again. You know, like I'm like I've done too many of these. I've, there's something wrong with me. Anyways, so today we're doing Saint Cyril because his feast day is on Friday coming up, um, and so I always like doing the episodes in conjunction with the the saint of the day. The, the, the commemoration of the day um, just so it matches up and everything and I like Cyril and I thought that he was important to talk about for a number of reasons uh, we probably typically hear about Cyril most of the time because obviously the Cyrillic alphabet he's the apostle to the Slavs he's you know um, him and his brother Methodius are one of our main people that we we go to and um, when I started to look through his life, I started to notice that there are a lot of other themes. And so I'm not going to talk too much about that today, about the, the, the typical things that we would associate with Cyril. And I'm not going to give a strong chronology of his life. I'm not going to go over all the different little episodes that are um, throughout his, um, his vita. What I am going to do, though, is I'm going to talk about it kind of thematically and in sort of a chronological way just leaving out something. So you may have looked up the saint before, known of particular situations that he's gotten, gotten in, and um, not hear about that today, and that's, that's going to be why. Um, so I would like to begin talking about St. Cyril. He um, and his brother have had two encyclicals uh, written about them in the past hundred and some years. And so this is how Pope Leo XIII began his encyclical called Grande Munos. Grande Munus meaning the great duty. The great duty of spreading the Christian name was entrusted in a special way to Peter, the head of the apostles and two successors. It urges the popes to send messengers of the gospel to various peoples on the earth as the affairs of the merciful God demand. For this reason, they sent Augustine to the Britons, Patrick to the Irish, Boniface to the Germans, in Willibord to the Flemish, Dutch, and Belgians. 
They often sent other men to other peoples to care for their souls. So in the exercise of the apostolic duty, they commissioned the holy men, Cyril and Methodius, to go to the Slavic people. Through their presence, and more especially through their labors, those people have seen the light of the gospel and have been led from their barbarian ways to a humane and civilized culture. So three cheers for being civilized. <laughs> um, I was thinking about this today during the liturgy um, and thinking about how like a family tree you kind of trace the hereditary like um, pattern of how you came to be you know there's, there's also a family tree in baptism and all of our different family trees, though we come from different people, always lead to people like Augustine, Patrick, and Boniface, and Cyril, and Methodius through our baptism. That through the tree of baptism, it'll lead back to them. And so I was thinking, I was just thinking about that today and how, you know, I wonder who long ago was the first person to baptize, you know, the person who baptized the person who baptized, the person who baptized, the priest who baptized me, you know? Um, anyways, so we're connected to them. So I would like to begin with some maybe historical context to, to Cyril himself. He was raised in Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, well, in the Byzantine Empire at the time, the way that it was administratively set up in its different areas um, was with a themata system or the theme system and it was like provincial armies that were set up as administrative areas so just in case a particular area of the empire was attacked it could quickly assemble an army to ward off the attack and so Thessalonica had its own themata its own theme and Cyril's father was um let me see what was it called it was the Drungarius. He was a Drungarius in the theme. So he, that title meaning that he led a thousand men in the military. And so Cyril did not come from, you know, a modest upbringing. He was very, uh, he was, his family was very well to do. And so that would eventually grant Cyril when he was growing up certain privileges, let's say. He was known in life not as Cyril but as Constantine that was his birth name Constantine and so in his life story he's constantly referred to as Constantine the philosopher when he was growing up at the age of eight he has this dream he has this dream where he was led into the city and told you can have any woman you want as your bride and he goes to the city as, as, as an eight-year-old. I know it's weird. Um, <laughs> and he sees all of these, and he, and he finds this one woman who is the most beautiful, the most radiant, and the most dignified, and he chooses her, and her name is Sophia, meaning wisdom. And so from an early age, he showed a great aptitude for, for learning and for education and for knowledge. Um, on his father's deathbed, there's this, um, there's the scene where on his father's death, but there's a scene where his mother is promising his dying father that 
everything that she'll do would be for the education of this son, even though he's like one of seven. And so let's see. So his his education is actually a really important part of who he is because it really um, it will demonstrate something about him. Um, so this is from his life. Taking up his studies, he remains at home and committed to memory the writings of St. Gregory the Theologian. In making the sign of a cross upon the wall, he wrote the following eulogy to St. Gregory. O Gregory, thou art a man in body, and but an angel in soul. Thou art a man in body, appeared as an angel, for thy lips praised like God, one of seraphim, and enlightened the universe with the teachings of the true faith. Therefore, accept me, who comes to thee with love and faith, and be my teacher and enlightener to such things did he pledge himself. Now, eventually, he was noticed for his strong aptitude, and he was brought to the capital by the Logothate. The Logothate is kind of like the minister of the, inter the interior. And he's brought for education. And he is educated um, in the Greek tradition. Um, this Greek tradition is much is is very is very rooted in the classics um i was reading somewhere that you can't really understand the byzantine history of um intellectual thought in kind of like a chronological way because it's always kind of anachronistic it's always going back and pulling someone in to the to the present but their educational system is something that's consistent it's something that's constant and it included a very classical understanding very classical um trying to think of the word probably system of education where you're learning literature uh grammar philosophy and today it's kind of um that is kind of I would say not very well identified when it comes to Byzantine history itself. And Anthony Caldellus, he's a famous Byzantine historian. He says this, Byzantium preserved, selected, and shaped the canon of Greek classics. It's regularly acknowledged, even if only grudgingly, that Byzantines were responsible for preserving almost all of Greek literature that we have today. He goes on to say, yet the discipline of classics has, to make an understatement, not been receptive to Byzantium and its texts. Most classicists fail to recognize that the Byzantines were their kindred spirits, indeed their forebearers, when it came to the study of Greek classics, for Byzantines did not preserve ancient literature for the benefit of future scholars. In a more enlightened Western society, they preserved the text for their own use and benefit. And so there are a certain kind of, let's say, uh, people today who don't necessarily regard um, Byzantine um, intellectual history in that light. And so this is really important in actually to understand Constantine and the education he got. Because in the classical system, it's understood that when you're educating someone, you're creating a person. You're teaching them how to think. You're teaching them what to know. 
and you're, you're, it's kind of a formation in, in knowledge. One that is not so much done today. It's kind of a haphazard kind of a system today. And so um, it teaches you how to interpret the world around you. And specifically with Cyril, we see that as a very holistic thing. And so he, like, for the further the point, the most widely published work in the Byzantine Empire aside from the Bible and the works of John Chrysostom were Aristotle's works on logic. So eventually at some point I was going to read a quote and I think I'm looking for it right now. We can just cut this part out of the actual episode. <laughs> this is going to be awkward. Okay, I'll just read this. When he arrived in the imperial city, he was given over to the teachers to be taught. In three months, he mastered grammar and began other studies. He studied home. He, he studied geometry and dialectics and philosophical studies with Leo and Photius. In addition, he studied rhetoric and arithmetic, astronomy and music and all other Hellenistic arts. Um, oh, yes, here it is. So that, that, that's just to kind of solidify the point that that's what his, his formation was like. When the Logothete uh, Theocristus asked Constantine, Cyril, uh, what philosophy was, he answered, the knowledge of the matters of God and man, to what extent man can approach God and how, through virtue, it teaches man to be in the image and likeness of the creator. And so he is someone who really kind of married his his desire for wisdom, his desire for knowledge, with his desire to know what God is and to know his own limits. Uh, eventually, after his studies, um, that same Theocristus, the Logothete, that, that really high-ranking minister, would be so impressed with him, he says, Cyril, I've got a niece. I've got a niece. <laughs> And, it, and, it, and it's, it is a certain kind of arrangement that if he were to marry this niece, he would one day become a governor of one of the themata, one of the theme, um, arm, uh, armies or administrations. And he rejects it. He says, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I bet thinking back to this dream that he once had when he was eight years old. And, um, and then so instead he became the director of the patri patriarchal secretariat. Um, and um, and thought that that was maybe a much more humbler situation. Uh, but his life would soon, you know, take a different direction. There would be two evangelical missions um, that Cyril goes on. One was to Kurson, which is now, it's a, um, it was kind of an outpost of the Byzantine army that was in now now it's called Crimea um, and then the other would be to another uh, a place that does no longer is, exists as it is it was would be great Moravia so the mission to Kurson started like this and then to the Greek emperor came emissaries from the Khazars the Khazars being these these kind of like steppe people um, who were inhabiting the area. 
And he says, from the beginning, we have known one God who is over all and worshipped him facing east. However, we keep other shameful customs. The Jews exhort us to accept their faith and ways, while on the other hand, the Saracens, offering us peace and many gifts, press us, saying, our faith is better than that of all other peoples. Maintaining our former love and friendship, we therefore have to come to you. For you are the great people, and your emperor is from God. And in requesting your counsel, we ask, we ask of you a learned man. Should he prevail of the Jews and the Saracens, we shall accept your faith. And so, Emperor Michael III, having known Cyril, Cyril being kind of a, a very uh, in a visible place within the empire, he chooses Cyril to go on this mission. And now he goes on this mission. He encounters the, the Khazars. Uh, and in the, it's actually where the most, I'd say the most, the brunt of his life is devoted to, is in this dialogue between um, these uh, Jewish leaders amongst the Khazars. Uh, and so I, I think that's rather interesting. The most dialogue that we actually have from Cyril is from this kind of exchange. I won't go over that because that'd be super boring for you guys. Um, but I, I there and there's some kind of interesting uh, little episodes in it as well where, you know, it's kind of like a St. Boniface. You know, St. Boniface cuts down the tree um, in, in his story. Um, St. Cyril has... A similar kind of situation where people are worshiping a tree and he, he doesn't go and he doesn't cut it down. He just convinces them to do it for him. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I guess that kind of says to his kind of dialectical charm, perhaps. Um, and so after having come directly from that, he's he's uh, well, actually, I've skipped over something in that one of those little episodes, he finds the relics of St. Clement. Now, if you're familiar with St. Clement, St. Clement was the Pope of Rome, who through, it's not Diocletian, it's another Roman emperor, I forget which Roman emperor. Shoot, maybe Sarah just put it in there, pretend that I actually said it. <laughs> Anyways, um, he, he's kind of banished from the Roman Empire. He's sent up the Black Sea to the coast of of um, Kherson or, or uh, Crimea and he's tied to an anchor and thrown into the water and so years, centuries later um, Cyril finds uh, the relics of St. Clement now there are particular stories that are kind of floating around this, this, this episode itself and it's, so it's not quite clear what exactly happened there are some things that say they found a grave that had an anchor on it, and it's like, well, one plus one equals two, you know. Um, and in in this specific uh, story, it's not quite clear. It's like he's on a boat, and then they're digging, and I'm like, you don't quite understand how that makes sense exactly. But um, actually, there is somewhere out there a text written by Cyril himself talking about how he found the relics of St. Clement. Now, 
that has not been translated into English. And so it's, it's in Latin somewhere, probably in a library. Um, and so someone has, you know, a quick shot at a PhD one day. Um, anyways, I'll move on. And so he comes back. He has the relics of St. Clement. That's amazing. He's the guy. You know, he's everyone thinks he's incredible. And so the kingdom of Great Moravia, a nation that only existed probably like almost 100 years, um, issues the uh, emperor of Constantinople to send them a missionary and to send and to send them yeah uh, teachers so that they can learn the faith because the people have the appetite for the faith he says um, it says here it's after he came back from his, his journey in Kherson when the philosopher was rejoicing in God yet another matter arose and no task less than the former for Rostislav the prince of Moravia through God's ab admonition took counsel with his Moravian princes and appeared to Emperor Michael saying, though our people have rejected paganism and observing Christian law, we have not a teacher who would explain to us in our language the true Christian faith so that other countries which look to us might emulate us. Therefore, O Lord, send us such a bishop and teacher for from you good luck for from you good luck come to all countries. And having gathered his council, the emperor summoned Constantine the philosopher and had him listen to this matter. And he said, philosopher, I know that you are tired, but it is necessary that you go there for none other than you can attend to this matter. And the philosopher answered, though I am tired and sick in body, I shall go there gladly if they have a script for their own tongue. Um, this is not exactly what was going on. Um, not on the part of Rostislav. Because there most certainly was, at the, we have to be honest, there most certainly was missionaries there at the time. And they were Frankish. They were Western. He didn't want his people to be influenced by the West. He wanted his own church. He wanted the kind of, ad, um, he wanted independence from any kind of Western influence. And so on his part, there were politics. And Michael III there's likely politics on his side too. But it's not the same thing for Cyril himself. Um, so, yeah, Rostislav, he wasn't exactly evangelistic in his ambitions. Um, so he wanted that autonomy. So, but Constantine does accept and he does create the script of, of uh, Gagalithic, which will eventually become Cyrillic. When Constantine arrived in Moravia, Rostislav received him with great honor, and he gathered students and gave them over to Constantine for instruction. As soon as all the church offices were accepted, he taught the matins and hours, vespers and compline, and the liturgy. And according to the word of the prophet, the ears of the death were unopened, the words of the script were heard, and the tongue of the stammerer spoke clearly, and God rejoiced over this, while the devil was shamed. So I think here... This is something that really stood out for me because I think here just in this kind of simple action and kind of a comment that we might just kind of read over, there's actually his entire missionary philosophy here. 
And it's that mission work needs an end. A lot of the time today, I'm kind of hearing this, these kind of trends in like missionary ethics where it's like, well, the very point of being a Christian is mission is to be a missionary. And Cyril shows us here that that is not the case. We evangelize people so that they can learn hours and matins, vespers and compline and the liturgy. It is so that we can have a relationship with God, like in, in uh, the epistle of St. Peter, to be partakers of the divine nature. And that's exactly what he offers them here, that the missionary ethic needs, a, needs an end in and of itself that it directs to. Not just kind of like the cyclical thing. I was thinking about it. It was like, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of people will today, well, we, 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 um, we're Christians and so we need to be uh, evangelistic so we can get people in the church so they can become missionaries and get people in the church and so that they can get people to be missionaries and get them into church. And it's just like, it's just a cyclical kind of thing, but it's like, no, we need to understand. And I think Cyril shows us this, that our our ambition to get people into church is so that they can have a real active living relationship with God in and through the liturgy. Because a, a certain, there's something that's a very Eastern kind of precept that we have is that the spiritual life comes from the sacramental life of the church. That we don't have a spiritual life independent of, of our our engagement in in the grace of God, in the way that He presents Himself in and through, especially the Divine Liturgy. Um, there was something I wanted to quote. Someone I wanted to quote. Yes, uh, it is Saint Nicholas of Capasilas. He says, "Oh, how great are the mysteries! What a thing it is for Christ's mind to be mingled with ours, ours." Our will not, our will to be, our will to be blended with his, our body with his body, our blood with his blood. And then Saint Simeon also he he almost overstates it. He's like, if you go to communion and you're not focusing on what you're doing, if you're not paying attention, if you're not going with your will, if you're going passively, you receive nothing. That's the that's the force that that Simeon. The new theologian says it in and here Cyril kind of leads us to this knowledge when he when he, the first thing he does when he gets there is he he educates them in prayer and in scripture and so from there the, it's a mission that lasts about four years uh, and they're they're constantly having kind of problems with the Franks and they're they're having some problems with something that the script calls trilingualism that the only languages people can pray in is, is Hebrew, Greek, and Latin because those were the languages uh, posted to the top of the cross. That's kind of like what the the uh, the belief was. And he's and and obviously we know from him that he's trying to educate people in just how to pray in their own tongue. And so he has these conflicts with these people. And eventually the Pope hears about him, Nicholas II. And and then he invites both him and Cyril to Rome, uh, Cyril Methodius to Rome. And so there's this big scene in his life where they're bringing 
not just themselves, but also the relics of Pope Clement, Pope St. Clement to Rome. Um, before they get there, uh, Pope Nicholas passes away and Hadrian II is, is installed. And, um, and so this is what it says from his life. Upon learning of Constantine, the Pope of Rome sent for him. And when he came to Rome, the apostolic father himself, Hadrian, and all the citizens came out to meet, carrying candles. For he was carrying the relics of St. Clement, the martyr and Pope of Rome. And at once God worked glorious miracles for his sake. And an infirm man was healed, and many others were cured of various maladies. And even captives were at once liberated from the hand of the captors when they invoked Christ and St. Clement. And then... Accepting the Slavic scriptures, the Pope placed them in the Church of St. Mary called Fantne, uh, St. Mary of something. I couldn't understand. <laughs> I can't quite read it because my printer didn't quite work. And the Holy Liturgy was sung over them. Then the Pope commanded two bishops, Formosos and Godrich, to consecrate the Slavic disciples. And when they were consecrated, they at once sang the liturgy in their Slavonic tongue in the church of the Apostle of Peter. And the next day they sang in the church of St. Petronella, and on the following day in the church of St. Andrew. And they sang the entire night, glorifying God in Slavic once again in the church of the Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul, the great universal teacher. And it goes on, they sang some more, and they sang some more, and they sang some more. And so it's very like... <laughs> There's something that in all of the other kind of literature about the life, because the life that I found of St. Cyril is the life that was written by Methodius, by his brother that we still have. It was nowhere online. And I was, I was th telling some people earlier that it was actually in the university library. And so that's what I was able to kind of go by and, um, and to read from and to quote from. Um, and it's clear from that narrative that this is the climax of the story it is not like don't get me wrong their missionary work was very important and it's it's all leading up but it's all leading up to something and this is what it's leading up to is their entry into rome which is actually like shocking when you consider the historical situation that's kind of going on because Pope Nicholas just died. Pope Nicholas had a massive feud with Photius during the Photius Schism. And it's also coming off of the heels in the year 800, so this is about 60 years later, uh, the Pope coronated um, Charlemagne in Rome to be the Emperor of the West, and it really cheesed off the East. And so there's, and, and it was also a time coming out of the iconoclastic controversy during his life. Um, actually, maybe while he was studying in Rome, the iconoclastic controversy was going on. It was when the, emp the, 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 the empire, the state, and the church both con together condemned icons, um, the veneration of icons. And so it was probably, it was a time of great conflict. And here we see just a complete peace in this kind of, uh, this relationship between the Pope and these Greek missionaries. And the, none of the other literature was actually commenting on this. I thought it was wild. 
when you actually sit down and you think about it, you have gain a knowledge of the situation. Um, and yeah, this is, and this is also everything when you're reading the story, all of his little experiences, his, his dream about wisdom, about knowledge, his, his education, his desire to love God, his missionary work for the church, all climaxes together when the Pope puts his Slavic scriptures on the altar and prays over them. It's actually pretty incredible. Um, I don't think Cyril has really been understood in a really proper way um, by, um, by anyone who's studied him, maybe in fragments, but, um, but not with the complete economy of what this, the work is actually telling us about him. Um, and also bringing the bones of a pope into Rome. This is a, such close proximity with the papacy itself. And I think that says something about us um, as Greek Ukrainian Catholics. Um, I think that says something a lot about our heritage and the heritage that Cyril himself was first planting um, long ago in the 860s or 840s. Forget which. Um, and so it talks about this is where Cyril dies. Cyril also dies in Rome. Um, upon his many labors overtook him, oh, and his many labors overtook him, and he fell ill. And during his illness for many days, he once had a divine revelation and began to chant the following, When they unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord, my spirit rejoiced and my heart was gladdened. And this is where he was actually made a monk. And he actually took the name Cyril. It was when he was in Rome. And I believe also the Pope... Um, ordained Methodius a bishop at this time as well. Maybe that'll be in part two. Um, but that's what I have to share basically about him is biographical kind of information. And reading this, it really kind of, one, I think everywhere in his life kind of undermines certain historical trends that are kind of the optics games that are going on today when it comes to the politicization of like the Eastern church or the Western church, it really kind of undermines a lot of these things being like anti-intellectual um, in spirituality. That's not the case. You know, it's not necessarily, um, I'd guess you'd say the, uh, the rule of, you know, Byzantine history and well, spirituality is that we're not anti-intellectual. And I think Cyril proves that in spades. I think also that uh, even our present day understanding of what missionary work ought to be, I think in the economy of our entire tradition, there is your program for missionary work. There is your program for the soul, essentially. And I think in a lot of different, like I, I've been involved in, you know, youth and young adult stuff since I was like a youth. And so, <laughs> and, uh, and you can, and in retrospect, there's always been this reinventing of the wheel and making all these different programs and really not really looking too close at the tradition that we've been given um, and really understanding it and really making it integrated into our lives. 
And so I think that's a really strong thing for me that comes out of the life of St. Cyril that I really appreciate because it's the truth that I've come to find to know that that uh, really made the difference for me in my spiritual life. And then finally, with his with his relationship to both Photius, the probably the one of the most antagonistic characters uh, against the West in 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 Byzantine history and his close, close proximity to the papacy, even today. It's kind of funny how, you know, he finds the relics of St. Cyril. He's invited by two, by one pope and welcomed by another. And now in the past hundred and some years, there have been two popes to have written about him. I, I don't think that's an accident. I think that there's something there. Um, on a personal note, I really appreciate Cyril because I really believe that Cyril has been praying for me specifically. I came, I was accepted, I, I transferred rights, and on the day that it was all officialized, it was, it was uh, February 15th, the day right after his feast day. And so I feel like I come from him in some way. Um, and so I, uh, I feel like that for, for all of us, if we really want to look at uh, St. Cyril and, and maybe emulate him and take on what he did, it's not so much, and this is quasi-controversial, it's not so much that we pray in his, the language he wrote, it's that we transmit our tradition to another culture. It's that we, we, we pass on what we've been given to someone else who is alien to us. I think that is the true spirit of Cyril. That's, that's when we're speaking Cyrillic. Um, anyways, that's kind of, uh, that's all I had to say today. Thanks, guys. Oh, do you have any questions, comments, anything you want to talk about? Well, does, if you don't want it to be on here, that's fine. You can just... I'm just kind of curious, actually. Um, I, I, I love history as well quite a bit, but I'm trying to visualize wh where was... Um, so Thessaloniki, right? That's where yeah. it kind of came from. Was that, was that a, a nation of its own at that time, or was that part of the Byzantine Empire? That was Empire? a part of the Byzantine Empire, okay. and so it's like it's a city and a province. Right, okay. Kind of like Quebec and Quebec City. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I, I've heard it uh, hypothesized, Bill, and I don't know how, how again... If there's any record, or if it could really fit into the into the existent lives and life story that we have for Saint Cyril and Methodius, but I, I've heard it. Uh, maybe, maybe this might just be more of a of a folk tradition, but I've heard it said that they actually came not from Greek heritage, but they were actually Slavs living in the in that northern region near Thessaloniki. Oh, okay. Um, but again, you know, you talk about his high position in the in the, in the political system, like his yeah. family's high, high position. And what, what just came to me when you were talking was that tradition that we saw in the Western Empire where, you know, the, the local leaders, you know, the leaders of the yeah. barbarian peoples were elevated in order. Yeah. To, and so I don't know. Is that well, I think that you, he had close proximity because in Thessalonica, they did have the Slavic peoples there. And when they would have heard the language, um, and they probably intermarried at some point, but I think the Franglo-Lingua, the Frank, 
I can't speak right Lingua now. Franca. Lingua, Lingua Franca, Franca is um, was Greek, and the culture was Hellenic. Yeah, I think what was going on at that point was not unlike what had happened in the West a couple of hundred years earlier. So I think what you had was like the Germans had gone down into the West in yeah. the West into Italy and Spain. You had them going down into uh, well, into it's actually Greeks. quite funny and. But they would have they would have been Hellenized in that process. Yeah, they would have yeah. been. It's actually funny. So Saint Cyril being in Thessalonica, his patron saint would have been Saint Demetrius. And in the church of Saint Demetrius in Thessalonica, there is a there was a um, what do you call it? An icon. <laughs> there was on the wall. There was an there there was this icon, and it was Justinian the second. Um, coming back from his um, illustrious crusade against the Slavs. And so they would have gone to church their entire lives looking at this icon of, you know, this Greek person um, killing the Slavic peoples. And yet they would be destined to evangelize to these same people. I think that's kind of interesting. In They would have heard Slavonic their entire lives. Um, one book saying that, you know, every day when the doors of the city of Thessaloniki were opened, they... There will be all these Slavic people coming into the, for trade and all this kind of stuff, um, and so they were in close proximity. Um, not, I don't think that takes away from his ingenuity in creating an alphabet for a language he's already heard, but still, nonetheless. Any other questions or comments? When you talk about them coming to Rome and um, having the liturgy or some sort of prayer service in St. Peter's Basilica, in St. Paul's outside the walls, and then you know, back to St. Peter's again. I mean, that's a great... It talks, like you said, about, it's, a, it's about the peace of, of the, all that happening. That mm. is a great sign of re respect from the West to have that happening. Mm. And not that, not that we need to be said, oh, you have great dignity. You know, that should come from ourselves. We should, we should say our... our our tradition, our liturgical tradition. Yes, it's it's dignified. It's the way we pray, um, but just to have that sign of respect from the West is is a sign of peace. It's, it's a, a nice sign. We mm -hmm. don't need it, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's interesting. Yeah, I've heard that part of the story before. I think it's neat because were they ordained priests in Rome? Okay, so actually, Saint Cyril, his entire life. Never tortured a monk. Never. I think he may have been like a subdeacon or something his whole life. But that would mean then that the Slavic version of the Byzantine liturgy is born in Rome. Is like celebrated in Rome. Like that's when it kind of comes to its own, right? If they if their priesthood is well, I think that uh, Methodius would have been oh, one celebrated. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. But but at, at the same time, it was very much blessed, and I think goes. That's where Leo the Thirteenth is connecting their work with his. Yeah, he says it was the his his own office to evangelize the world, right? And he's saying that um, he's sending these people out now. Obviously, he didn't initially send them out personally, mm -hmm. Peter, but it, it was in the West. But he he gets a hold of this. He sees the good in it, and he blesses it. And I think that that creates. I think it's interesting too how you have two men that are essentially at loggerheads Photius and Nicholas yeah. or Photius and Hadrian and yet they can both be working for the greater glory of God even if there's political well, machinations going on 
Yeah. Um, history will remember Cyril and Methodius's triumph there, regardless of kind of the silliness of what's going on in Constantinople. Yeah, I think it was over like Bulgaria, wasn't it? It was over Bulgaria and Croatia, I think, and then there was something yeah. about like a council that he had called and the Lamb of God Ooh. being bad or something. <laughs> 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 anyway, I, that's that's an interesting point. I was thinking, what would have been. What would have that meeting been like had Nicholas lived? Maybe it would have been different. Maybe it would have been just as cordial. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I think that we haven't really been able, like at least in the things that I quickly kind of went through, they weren't really able to address that real historical context that was going on. Um, seriously. I think it's interesting too, Bill. Uh, the the glag- glagolitic script is actually still in usage in some jurisdictions. I know that there is a, a definitely some monuments, at least in, I've seen pictures from uh, Croatia too, where it's it's the Slavic language, but in the Glagolitic script. And there was someone someone online recently who was sharing a, I think it comes, probably came from Prague, but a, a modern sort of, I think, Czech Glagolitic dual language script of the divine liturgy or one of the office mm. one of the uh, liturgical texts so it seems to be that it's, it's interesting too because we talk about the cyrillic alphabet coming out of greek and glagolitic into its own but that even that initial glagolitic script is not a dead it's not dead, dead it's still there as, oh, as, as much right yeah i mean it's still defunct but still you know there's still that that uh tradition continue, continue continuing on as well hmm interesting Anyone else have any other thoughts or comments or um, anything? I had a question. Um, in uh, in your talk, you you well, I mean, obviously, you spoke to the idea of that moment in Rome being kind of the crux of the story, right? Yeah. And how um, yeah, uh, you're thinking that a lot of people who've um, spoken about um, Saint Cyril have kind of missed the boat, or about about that being the significance, or they haven't yeah. given it, uh, or they've spoken about it in a more fragmented way. Uh, what is some of the larger conversation about St. Cyril, and what significance do you well, other people it, give it him? Well, it typically goes along with his role as being the the one who translates, mm-hmm. or the one who who uh, illustrated the script, mm-hmm. you know, first conceived of it all, for um, the Cyrillic, and... And probably along with his epitaph of being apostle to the Slavs. And so that's typically the main focus is his mission to Moravia specifically. And it kind of, and his mission to, his first mission is not really too much um, of a topic, Mm -hmm. I found, with his, um, with kind of the commentary that goes around it. It's always mentioned that he he goes into Rome, but never the significance. (coughs) Um, where really I think this is a huge kind mm-hmm. of gesture. Oh, okay, so kind of he's often conceived of somebody who's facilitated through translation and mission work as opposed to somebody who was actually yeah. a properly creative force in the yeah. Eastern Church. Okay. And I think you, you, you mentioned it, Bill, but I think it probably deserves repeating too that the entirety of his epic missionary stylings and all that stuff occurred when he was you know either a lower order cleric or a lay person yeah right? so to the connection between the missionary work of the laity and and the missionary work of the of the clergy as well yeah. you know i think plays an important part of the story mm-hmm. totally anyways how's that how about ending there
Thank you.